Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Lynn Schmidt. Lynn is a global management consultant with a passion for helping women navigate and avoid career setbacks. Lynn is a certified executive coach specializing in assisting women in creating careers accompanied by growth and success. Lynn's career focuses on developing leaders in Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, and academia. Lynn was named one of the Women of the Year by the Idaho Business Review for her work with women and resilience. Lynn is an advocate for women's rights and gender equality. Lynn is an award winning author of six books. Lynn's fifth book, Thriving from A to Z, Best Practices to Increase Resilience, Satisfaction, and Success, won three literary awards for Best Personal Development Book. Shift into Thrive, Six Strategies for Women to Unlock the Power of Resiliency, won six literary awards and is listed in Inc.com as one of the top 60 books about leadership and business written by women. Lynn's sixth and most recent book, Anti-Sexist, provides men and women with an understanding of how sexist behaviors harm women and girls, along with helpful action steps to manage sexism. Lynn is a frequent keynote speaker and presenter at conferences worldwide. Lynn presents on a variety of topics, including women's rights, gender equality, being anti-sexist, resiliency, women and career derailment, leadership development, and writing nonfiction books. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Lynn. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, I'm really excited to have you here. And thank you so much again for taking part in the podcast. Lynn, I generally like to start things off by asking my guests about their career journey. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to create Schmidt Leadership? Yeah, I actually spent I've spent all my career in leadership development, but most of it was working, has been working in Fortune 500 or larger companies, heading up their leadership development functions. And one of the reasons I got involved uh, in women's issues is I also was a mid-career returning student to get my PhD. And by that time, I had been working in leadership development long enough as a coach, as a a person who developed leaders, to see women in very senior uh, positions come and go pretty quickly. And so when I started my dissertation, my focus of my dissertation is on women and career derailment and women within three levels of the CEO and their perceptions of why their career was derailed. Because most organizations that focus on women and women leaders, they focus on, uh, their research has been on going and asking men, think of a woman whose career has derailed and you tell us why it derailed. So the purpose of my dissertation and my research, it really is feminist foundations, was to give women voice. 
and for women to be able to tell me why they believe that their career derailed. So that really started while I while I was working with women before that, that really started my focus on women, led to my dissertation, a hundred page dissertation and research there, but also then led to my book Shift into Thrive and other works. And then Schmidt Leadership came out of that. It's it's the umbrella for the work that I'm specifically doing now, the books that I'm writing, the research that I'm doing, and the coaching that I'm doing uh, with women as far as helping them uh, overcome career derailment and survive um, and overcome sexism. Well, that's really a great segue. And thank you for that work you're doing because a female, as a female in the legal profession, I've seen a lot of my, my colleagues get derailed in their careers. So it's, it's very, very important work. And so I, I do want to spend some time talking about your most recent book and, uh, it's, uh, anti-sexist. And I want to know a little bit about why you decided to write the book. My, it started with my work on my dissertation. That was really eye-opening to me. And then I did the book Shift into Thrive, which took that a little bit deeper and is resiliency strategies for women whose careers have derailed. And I became really immersed in women's, more so immersed in women's issues. And I started thinking I was going to write this book just focused on women in the workforce and in corporate America. And as I started doing more research and talking to women and doing surveys and doing interviews, I realized that the focus on sexism tends to be on specific issues or specific areas that many of the gurus in this area will focus in on the workplace or violence at home or harassment or, you know, they'll focus and they'll hone in and get real specific, which is very good to eliminate an issue. But uh, what I was finding is people didn't have the full scope of what was going on. They didn't understand the full impact of sexism on women. In fact, there's a lot of denial going on that things have improved, that things are better. And actually, they aren't. Um, The data is showing that things are getting worse in in all sorts of areas related to sexism. So I wrote the book to to provide the full picture, the big picture of sexism, what all the outcomes are of sexism for women so that people can see the full the full impact. Um, Women deserve better than what they're getting. Uh, Men need to step up and really own their role and responsibility uh, in uh, sexism and you know, women's, as I said, women's rights aren't progressing. Sexism is getting worse. And people need a need a roadmap. And I, I believe this book is that roadmap for them to, to end sexism. Yeah, I would agree. It's a great, great book. And one of the things I, I thought was interesting um, it, early on in the book, you and it's the first time I've actually seen this. You, you talk a little bit about how sexism got its start. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that with us. Yeah, well, sexism exists from the beginning of time. So however men and women arrived on Earth, uh, sexism was pretty much pretty much there from the from the beginning. But there are recorded instances. uh, If you think about I mean, one example is Homer's Odyssey, uh, which was written over 3000 years ago. And in that example, um, Penelope is told by her son, she's trying to voice her opinion on something that he's talking, he and his friends are talking about. 
And he's she's told by her son to go to her room that this that this isn't women's business. Women shouldn't be involved. Women need to go do their uh, mending and their sewing and not not be involved in in the issues of the day. So that was recorded. That was written on, you know, more than 3000 years ago. And then from there, there's just example after example after example. So essentially, my belief is that sexism has has existed you know, since men and women have existed. Yeah, it's very frustrating. So the book is actually broken out into three main sections. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about each of those sections? Well, the reason I wrote the book, and and so I structured the book and wrote the book to address these three main goals. I want to enable people to understand what sexism is. And so that's where I, I wrote about the big picture all the ways that sexism impacts women, and obviously not just women, it's children and nations and men, um, companies, organizations. I want to help people manage sexism when they experience it. So when a woman experiences sexism, I want her to be aware of what's going to happen and to be able to better manage what she's experiencing. And then I want to assist people. The title of the book is Anti-Sexist. So I want to assist people in becoming anti-sexist to really be able to step up and say uh, that they don't support sexism, but also to take actions that that show that they don't support sexism. So the subtitle of the book is Challenge Sexism, Champion Women's Rights, and Create Equality. And so that's what I'm looking for people to be able to do uh, after they've read the book. Yeah. And and like you said, you really do provide a great roadmap um, for people in the book. And um, before we we talk about that, that roadmap, you, you do describe in the book four outcomes of sexism. And I thought it'd be helpful for listeners if we talk about those in a little bit more detail. And and the first one is microaggression. So I was wondering, um, can you tell us uh, what microaggression is and, and why it's so harmful for women? Absolutely. And as you look at these, first of all, just to set the stage for the four outcomes, as you look at these four outcomes, going back to what I said about people tend to specialize or get involved in different varying areas of sexism. So you'll find a book written about microaggression. You'll find a book written about sexual harassment in the workplace. You'll find, you know, you'll find a lot about violence um, on women, you know, violence towards women. And the book, the roadmap of the book and these four outcomes are really pulling that all together so you can see the full picture. And and starting with microaggression, that's where I believe it it all starts. Um, If we don't address microaggressions, if we don't stop sexist microaggressions, they escalate to some of the other outcomes we'll be talking about. So microaggressions are those, those things that we may not even Sometimes they are intentional. Sometimes they may not be. It may be how we were brought up, people we've talked to, the media has a big influence in this, but they're the things we'll say often or even do that um, that that are sexist. That And I call all the outcomes of sexism abuse. They are all abuse. So microaggressions are abuse. Um, it might be um, saying, you know, I'll, I'll use this one. You might be saying a woman's having a blonde moment. You know, you don't hear men being said that they're having blonde moments. No. Um, I even like to use the example of Karen 
um, nowadays. I mean, you, you don't have a name, a specific name for men to say that they're being stupid and idiots. But no, women all of a sudden, you know, are caring. So those are recent examples. But it's the things we say. Um, it's it's the things that we often take for granted. And that's where it got its name. There's their aggressions, their abuse. They aren't really micro because they build up. And after a period of time of these kind of insults, of these kind of, um, you know, being treated poorly, they build up and they really impact women's um, mental health, physical health, uh, and they get in the way of women's progress and ability to to move forward. So that's where sexism starts. And that comes from, you know, that comes from our biases, that comes from how we're brought up, it comes from all sorts of things. And men and women, I want to stress this, men and women both do sexist microaggressions. They say both men and women say and do things that are that are sexist. Yeah, and that's interesting. You should mention uh, about women um, in that comment because I I was reading uh, an article in EBN that was in April of this year, and they were talking about um, some of the microaggressions that women face at work, whether it's having their authority questioned, being overlooked for um, cr- upward career opportunities, or having another colleague take. Uh, credit for their work. And um, they were saying that it's causing women to be burned out because they're constantly having to prove themselves and their worth over and over again. And the article went on to say that, uh, interestingly enough, that increased representation of women in the C-suite in various departments really hasn't helped decrease the amount of microaggressions that have been taking place. And in fact, they quoted something like 33% of all women say, most a lot of the sex things that they're hearing is from other women, which I found really, really interesting. I'm curious what you think. Yeah. So when I was doing my research and even the interviews for my dissertation, when I started looking at women's issues, that comment came up. And and what's important for all of us to realize is that the patriarchy, where all of this really flows out of, the patriarchy is a system to control women. And the patriarchy is a system. So women can support that system the same way men support that system. Men can be feminists. Women can be feminists. But in the same turn, women can support the patriarchy. Um, And oftentimes they do so because they believe that kind of riding the coattails of men in power. And when men are in power, they they often are um, sexist. And they're controlling of of women and women what women do and accomplish. Often there are there are women who support the patriarchy because they believe that using the term riding the coattails of yes. these powerful men will get them somewhere. And the honest truth is, is those powerful men who are sexist will throw those women under the bus just as fast as they'll throw women under the bus who don't who are feminists and against sexism. But but it happens. Uh, and I think it's important to realize why it happens, how it happens and and understand that it's going to happen. Yeah, it always, you know, when I read that article, it reminded me something that the late Madeleine Albright used to say, which was there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, we're seeing so, so much of that in the last four, five, six years, it just, it's really come to the, come to the surface. And, and, 
you know, when I was writing the book, I would get up every, even before then, but I would get up every, and it was about a two-year process uh, when you throw COVID and how things slowed down and, and all of that. But I would get up every morning and look at the news and look for key articles. And that's how I came up with the four um, outcomes of sexism was by looking at all the articles and kind of combine, you know, saying, what, how do these group together? How can we create a framework that makes sense of all of this that I'm seeing every day, just being bombarded by news about things that are sexist? And so I would get up every morning and, and look at it and just, it was, it's, it, oh, it's still today. I do the same thing and it's, it's over, it's overwhelming the amount of sexism that, that goes on and the amount of it that, you know, the amount of, if you look at microaggressions, they flow from um, areas of, you know, as I mentioned, sexist language, but stereotypes, um, objectification. So how women look, I mean, constant, uh, shaming, uh, mothers, you know, think about mothers get shamed continuously. If they're, they're, they're wrong, if they breastfeed, they're wrong, if they don't, they're, they're, you know, as a woman, you're wrong. If you have children, you're wrong. If you don't working moms have it really, really difficult, I think. Yep, absolutely. And then mansplaining and man interrupting is an example of um, uh, of microaggressions and then invalidation. So when you do speak up and you say, I'm experiencing this, I it's very difficult me difficult for me to take this the sexist language or this objectification I'm experiencing. You get told, Oh, you're too sensitive. You know, get over it. Don't don't be so sensitive about this. And so invalidation is a, a microaggression as well. Yeah. And I can tell you as as being an attorney, I was told early on as an associate that I needed to to develop a thicker skin. And a lot of us women in the legal profession are told over and over again that we need to have a thicker skin, that we're too sensitive. And uh, it, it's very difficult to deal with. And it's very, very, like you said, very, very stressful when, when you're, you know, at any point in your career, let alone when you're starting out. Yeah, definitely. And, and the interesting thing is, is, you know, there will be a lot, there's a lot about women in the legal profession out there. Um, a lot of articles, a lot of research, but it's every profession. So, so yeah. And that's the thing is, is, as I look at it broadly, you know, an article just popped up yesterday about the um, a teaching profession, how it's majority of women in the teaching profession, like three quarters, and yet the number of women in leadership in education is very is very small. And you, so you find it all the profession, you find it everywhere. You find it. Yeah, definitely. So we've talked about um, microaggressions and the next outcome in the book that you talk about is discrimination. And and I think we all think we know what discrimination is, but I'm curious if you could define that for us and, and maybe some of the different types of discrimination. Sure. As I mentioned, the key here is micro, it starts with microaggression. So when you, uh, an organization or a company or your family or your friends allow you to insult, to use sexist language, to objectify women, when you can get away with that, that's when that can escalate to discrimination. And discrimination can happen everywhere. Um, it, it's, you know, different types of discrimination. I mean, it happens in, the, in, as I mentioned, in the education field, it happens in how you're employed. Um, the wage gap uh, is a big place where discrimination happens. Uh, 
According to the World Economic Forum, it'll take 135 years for women to achieve parity with men. And they have four worldwide indicators, economic opportunity, political power, education, and health. Uh, The most recent statistic on closing the wage gap itself is 267 years. And the, you know, the average for the wage gap is, is, Includes white women and women of color, but it's it's far worse for women of color. It's horrible, horrible for women of color. And in fact, I was looking at the U.S. census records from 2020, and they were showing that in the U.S., women made 83 cents for every dollar made by a man. And, and like we mentioned, it was a lot worse for women of color. That means essentially we all have to work 40 extra days um, to earn a comparable wage. And and I've seen it in my own career. I've uh, I've definitely seen the disparity between myself and my other female colleagues and my male colleagues. Um, and you see it. There's so few women equity partners in law firms. And and we tend when you know, you do get to that level. We earn about 78 percent of what our, our male equity partners um, earn. So and it's in all professions all over the place. But I think we've seen some there's been some interesting success stories lately, like we're kind of chipping away, I think, slowly, Lynn, and, and seeing women stepping up and and challenging the fact that there is this disparity. Um, we saw the women's soccer team settled uh, its lawsuit with U.S. soccer um, for $24 million. Um, and then there have been some really interesting cases, which I'm, I'm curious um, what you think about. Um, and in the last two weeks here, first of all, um, Sterling Jewelers, which um, owns Jared and Kay Jewelers, agreed to pay $175 million for a class action that was brought by 68,000 women, which is just incredible over their pay and promotion practices. And then just this week, Google agreed to $118 million for women staff who were paid less than their male counterparts. And that was almost 16,000 women. So, you know, I think we're starting to see a little bit of change, but um, I'd be curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean those those are good to see. Those those suits are being brought forward that women are winning those suits. I think that comes a lot from the attention that's that's been paid in the last few years. I mean, I hate to I I kind of I'm not a, necessarily a fan of the days like we have the wage gap day, you know, uh, sort of thing out there on the calendar. But, you know, it does bring attention to things and I think all it takes is one you know, one group of women to stand up uh, to it and then it can, you know, others will others will do the same and others will feel comfortable doing the same. So it's the way I look at it, though, is it's often one step forward and two step back, two steps backwards. And and while I see these things and they're good signs, I think the first thing I think is, well, why are women having to fight for this to begin with? Yeah. in twenty twenty two. Yeah. Why are we, we aren't less than, and that's another reason I wrote the book, you know, why are women having to fight for this to begin with? We aren't less than, but then sometimes you'll see that happen, but then there's all the stories you don't hear about uh, that, that where women aren't being um, paid equally, or, I mean, think about what happened with COVID and all of the women who left the workforce because you know, when, when you think about pay, you've got to look at it holistically. There's benefits. There's all the pieces of it. All of the women who left the workforce and haven't haven't come back or the men have, 
uh, because they there's there's not benefits or or rarely benefits around um, childcare and those sorts of things that would enable women to to be successful in the workforce. So th- those are all um, you know those are all types of, of discrimination that that women encounter. Yeah, I think COVID really set women back. It, it was just it, they had to make some really really difficult choices and and. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens the next few years, but it was not a good time for women at all. No, and healthcare is another area where discrimination just runs runs rampant. I mean, women today, 2022, it's happened to me last year. I had an orthopedic surgeon when I was questioning him, essentially told me that I needed help, that I was too worried about the surgery oh and gosh. that I had no right to be questioning him. So women are still, you know, when they ask questions, when they push back, you know, healthcare industry is one example. They're they're treated as if they're mentally incompetent. Whereas if a man does the same thing and stands up and asks questions, that's respected. And so healthcare, I mean, women in healthcare, they're they're diagnosed far later for cancers and other diseases than men. Um, as I said, they're treated when they ask questions, when they when they don't just sign up for what the doctor says. They're treated as, as if they're mentally incompetent. I mean, there's so many, so many issues in in healthcare and, and on the job as well, how you're hired, how you're interviewed. I mean, discrimination is just, it's just everywhere. Yeah. And, and not only is it, you know, the discrimination at your physician and having, you know, your conditions either being ignored or dismissed by physicians. There's also, I'm, I'm, I do a lot of pharmaceutical patent work. You know, there's the whole issue where drugs have been tested in white men and women and particularly women of color and, and even men of color, you know, they haven't been included in, in clinical trial studies. And in fact, there was recently a paper in reports on this exact point. And, I, you know, we're starting to see, you know, Avi just recently announced that they're uh, hiring their first director of clinical trial diversity. But, you know, it, it's, you know, we're all different. And uh, that's been another huge issue because our biology is different than than men's. And, um, you know, to, to try all drugs in just one group of of individuals has just just not been a good thing. So some progress there, but still a long way to go. And particularly for for people of color and women of color, um, that's another really, really big issue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely is. And then education, the, the types, I mean, just from the minute a girl gets into school, even if her parents work as hard as they can, you know, until she enters school, to to eliminate sexism um, from their lives and, and from her life. You know, the minute she enters school and she's got teachers and peers and, and you know, in school, girls are just treated, often treated, um, at, especially with things like math and science, as if they can't do that. They're just simply not capable. And there's nothing to prove that. In fact, up until I think it's 10 or 11, girls are actually doing better in those areas than boys, and then once once the sexism really gets and you know plays out, and and then then they start you know not doing as well. So there's all of you know all of these issues that happen, and they they start. One of the things I mentioned is we've really got to start early to eliminate sexism. I mean, it's in children's. You know, Disney's doing better, but 
Oh, Disney know. was terrible for a while. And and in fact, there were there were those stereotypes, you know, going back to education about, you know, girls just can't do math. I you know I heard that growing up and, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other people have heard that growing up that, you know, girls just can't can't do math. And that translated into science. And, you know, even when I was a kid, you know, you want to think about being a teacher or a social worker or something like that. And now that's gotten better, but we still are lacking, you know, women um, in STEM. Um, and in fact, um, there was a guest blog by the UN Women uh, UN Women Executive Director Seema Buas in March of this year for International Women's Day. And she was talking about how the lack of gender equality in science is holding back to holding us back from really important problems of today, particularly with respect to climate change. And she was quoting from the UNESCO science report from 2021 that said only 33 percent of women are in in the world are are in science. And um, this is really, um, you know, contributing and creating um, issues with respect to, to solving some of these really important uh, global societal problems and challenges that we're facing. Yeah, because career is another area where women are discriminated yeah. against. And so let's say, you know, women in college do want to still pursue STEM. They've made it through, you know, all, all the hoops they've been up against in, in, in high school and grade school, and they still want to pursue STEM. But once they get in those programs, they're often discriminated against and treated differently uh, than, than the men in those programs. And research shows that they drop out. They leave uh, at that point in time in, in college because they... They just don't want to deal with being treated that way. Yeah, definitely not. And and then for even for the small number of women who who continue on, you know, trying to get funding and other things is very very challenging um, compared to their their male counterparts. Yeah, I was reading um, one of the articles when COVID started was about the woman who really championed and pursued the the vaccine for the virus and. The fact that she was fired once because of it. That's an incredible story. Yep. Yeah, her story is incredible. And the fact that she was fired, couldn't get funding and all the things she went through. Um, but most but it was it was because she was a woman in in STEM. Yeah, absolutely. And and we are facing tremendous challenges and, you know, um, we need more women, more women of color in STEM. And, you know, it's, it's again, another one of these things that's moving incredibly slowly, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. And absolutely true. I mean, any of these, any of these stats we talk about, any of these examples we talk about impact women of color, usually in a worse way than, than white women. Yeah, absolutely. And then I think your book also talks about, uh, sexual discrimination, which we've talked about a little bit in here um, as well. And, um, you know, I, I find it very timely. We're doing this podcast now because um, I would just want to talk about um, in terms of um, sexual discrimination, you know, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, which was the landmark gender equality law that was passed back in 1972, signed by President Nick Nixon as part of the education amendments, um, which banned sex discrimination in federally funded programs, which has had a, a tr tremendous uh, impact in high schools and colleges, particularly for women um, in athletics. I mean, you look in 1972, the number of women in high schools who participated in sports, it was 
about 300,000. And then you look at it, uh, the last recorded data was like 2018, 2019. It was about 3,500. So you're going from 7% to 43%. And, you know, there's similar numbers in college, which, you know, so you can see the benefits of, of those types of programs, but there's still a long way to go. You you talk to women athletes and and uh, in other areas in uh, colleges, there's there's still a lot of discrimination. And then certainly in, in jobs and other areas of life, we, we still as women still face tremendous uh, sexual discrimination as well. Yeah, absolutely. And when you talk about sexual discrimination, you, you need to also factor in women who have um, different sexual preferences. They aren't heterosexual. Yes. And they face um, more extreme uh, discrimination typically than than women who are uh, heterosexual. So women who are lesbians, women who are bisexual, women who are trans. Um, so you've got that aspect of it as well. Now, your third outcome that you talk about in the book is harassment. So uh, again, like discrimination, I think a lot of us think we know what harassment means, but uh, could you tell us uh, or define that for us? Yeah, harassment is typically repeated um, verbal or physical uh, sexist acts, or um, it may not be repeated. It could it could be something that's done one time that's that's pretty extreme. Um, so verbal could be just comments about how you're looking, what you're doing, uh, come ons. Uh, those sort of things in the workplace. Um, physical could be the touching, you know, inappropriate touching. Uh, you've also got, um, you know, online is huge now. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever, I mean, I've had this happen to me several times and I'm sure other women have. You get these kind of random people who reach out to you either on Facebook or LinkedIn who just, um, they're men and they just start, you know, they start down a path and they just do not leave you alone. And it, it's, it's very disturbing. Yeah, there's absolutely, there's that. There's a lot of the online, um, you know, sending the pics and the photos to women on, you know, unsolicited. There's also, when you post something, there's also, uh, you know, it's cyber bullying, but it tends to happen more to women and it, it tends to happen more to women. I mean, look at Amber Heard, look at, you know, our vice president. It tends to happen to women who are more in the public space where they are just ganged up on, um, where multitudes and whether it's bots or whether it's real people or not, uh, you're still being attacked by a huge volume of people and those comments are out there. And so it happens, you know, it happens a great deal or a lot in a larger, uh, larger numbers to women who are in the, you know, in the public eye who are, who are well known for, for whatever reason. And that is, I've had that happen to, to me on uh, more. So, I've had it happen a couple of times on LinkedIn, but more so on Twitter where I don't know what causes it, but all of a sudden it's like the words put out on the street and I've either, I've irritated someone and bam, my, my tweet is just jumped all over on and you end up turning off the comments or you, you know, but the, the thing I mentioned in my book about the online pieces, we can't allow them to shut us up. Uh, that, you know, that's the key is they're trying to shut you up. And we can't we can't allow them to shut us up. So, you know, to to take a screenshot, to document, to report, 
I've reported multiple things on both Twitter and, and LinkedIn and Facebook uh, before. So so that's, you know, that's really important. Um, young girls, there's, you know, this is another one where, you know, young girls get receive quite a lot of online um, har- harassment. Um, and a lot of it's sexual related just because of their age. And it's also a place where men will try and recruit, whether it's you know, for prostitution or or what have you, they'll try to recruit right, young girls on online. So there's just online just has so many dark corners when it comes to this. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very very scary, especially for for parents of of young girls who get their first phones and and they've got iPads and other things for sure. Yeah, and then a couple other areas of harassment are bullying and. Bullying is certainly, it's a new, it's a fairly recent term to talk about um, harassment in the workplace, but I specifically in the book used it in its original form to re- to talk about bullying that girls receive um, in school by peers, because that's often where their first experiences of sexism will occur, and it occurs young and it occurs early. And it's all tied to, not all of it, but much of it is tied to appearance. So it's that objectification again. And that's, you know, that is a, has a huge impact early on girls once, you know, uh, focusing on how important it is to start these discussions early with our, with children early about what sexism is, what it looks like, you know, talk to the boys, this is inappropriate. Talk to the girls, if this happens, here's, here's what you do. Don't, it may happen just so there's not that surprise factor and and have discussions with both boys and girls about it. And then a couple areas of harassment that are key at women, um, one is street harassment. And the stats show that uh, it was 86% of women experienced harassment, uh, street harassment. So that means you're out, you know, you're you're simply minding your own business out walking or jogging or or what have you. And you're harassed by a guy in a car driving by. You're harassed by construction workers. You're harassed by uh, someone who's walking on the street. And this is scary. I mean, this is really scary because it can escalate to what we're going to be talking about next when it comes to violence. But harassment escalates again from microaggressions. So when you're allowed to talk poorly about women with your friends or family or coworkers, that can easily escalate to discrimination. It also escalates to harassment. And an example, um, you know, of, of that is where, you know, maybe at work, a man is using microaggression and insulting women or speaking poorly about women to their buddies and their buddies let it happen. Well, then the man may start escalating and doing it on the street. Uh, And that it gets scary because women often have to change or feel like they need to change their habits. So a woman who's a runner uh, and many of us feel like we can't do this. We don't feel comfortable running in the dark, whether it's morning or evening uh, because of the harassment we might, you know, we might experience. So there's many forms of harassment that, um, that women fear, uh, you know, when it comes to street harassment and, and flashing is, is another one that large numbers of women have experienced flashing um, out on the street. So that's a man showing his genitals to a woman, whether it's, you know, in a, uh, just w- walking by her or on, sometimes it happens on buses or public transportation. So those are the kinds of things that really women began to fear 
uh, because those sorts of things flat, you know, can lead to flashing has been shown to lead to, to that men who flat started flashing um, became rapists. And so it's it's a very those are very scary forms of harassment for women that that often make us feel like we need to change our routine or, you know, carry our keys in our hand or, or all sorts of different things. Yeah. And I think that's a, a good segue, as you mentioned, harassment often leads to your final outcome, which, as you mentioned, is, is violence. So can we talk a little bit about what violence against women is and, and a little bit about how it's different from domestic violence? Yeah, so violence here is used broadly to encompass or include uh, physical violence, uh, which doesn't have to, isn't necessarily sexual, um, but it does include sexual violence as well, which could be rape. Um, emotional violence is where um, you're a, a man attacks who you are, your personality, the kind of person you are, just continued uh, abuse that way. Um, economic is when a man has control of the finances and you may not have, a woman may not have the credit cards or access to bank accounts. She may not even have a car. She may not even be able to drive. So the man has really total control over her, which makes, uh, makes it impossible when you talk about a woman leave, can women leave violent situations or abusive situations? Often they can't for these reasons. Um, coercive control is where the none of this may happen. Um, these things can happen together, but a woman may be in a relationship with a man or married to a man where he monitors everything she does. She has to check in continually. Um, he may have monitors and tracking on her phone. He continually monitors and questions her about who she's seeing, what she's doing, what she's involved in. And that, you know, that as well, and often it combines with some of these others, you combine that with economic control and, and the woman is, is totally controlled um, by, you know, by the man. And then femicide, you know, is, is the worst of, of all of these. Um, that's when women are murdered or killed simply because they're women. Uh, so that really, it's, it's different than, you know, a random death of a woman, um, it, these women are women are intentionally murdered. Um, oftentimes, it's by a spouse or someone they know, an intimate partner. Um, but it may not be. Uh, it may be. It may like these often stem from harassment. So it escalates again. Harassment will turn into to violence. So a man may feel that you know it's okay. It's nobody said he couldn't yell awful things that, that women is, as she walks down the street, well, that can escalate to where he follows her, attacks her, rapes her, and, and murders her. And it happened because, because she was a woman and because he feels like he has power and control um, as a man to do this to women. Yeah, and that was interesting to me when I read it in the book, and I actually did some some research on that. And, and it was interesting to me because there are only a handful of countries, interestingly enough, that uh, legally recognize femicide as different from homicide. And, and those are in mainly in, in Latin America, where there are um, a bunch of countries that have included it as a specific crime. Um, the EU doesn't um, have any defined femicide in their legislation. And we don't hear in the U.S., although uh, we have the Violence Against Women Act, which thankfully President Biden just uh, reauthorized and signed. It had been um, 
on kind of hold and stagnant there for a while. Um, and it's considered to be a landmark legislation because it uh, makes it the responsibility of the federal government to prosecute domestic violence and support victims. I know it has some issues um, in terms of funding right now, but it helps support things I know like rape crisis centers, domestic violence centers. Um, and so I, I think it's definitely a good thing, but I think it's we have a way to go here in this country as well as some other countries before uh, femicides rec- recognizes as different than homicide. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think the key is, is if we back up um, and simply recognize and acknowledge sexism and what all sexism does, whether it's recognized as femicide or homicide, I don't know. I don't know what difference that would make. But what we need to recognize is that that women, I mean, it's the last study I saw, 137 women a day are being killed um, because they are murdered because they are women. Um, the last stats I pulled up for when I was working on the book was in the U.S., it's five women a day uh, of that 137. And it varies by country and location. But the numbers aren't, you know, the numbers aren't small. And yet what I find so interesting is how much attention does that get? And I think I believe um, I, I truly believe that that racism is a horrible thing. And it needs to be ended just like sexism needs to be ended. But as Gloria Steinem said, when men are involved, it's going to get more attention. So if you think about racism and you think about what happened with George Floyd or others, racism impacts men and women. Racism gets far more attention than sexism because sexism only impacts women. And that's what she said. She said, if, if, if an issue impacts men, both men and women, or only men, it's going to get far more attention and visibility than an issue that in, that is perceived to impact only women. And so sexism, the five women a day being murdered in the U.S., gets, gets no attention because it's only about, perceived as only about women. And, and women, I, you know, really, I believe, are on the bottom of the, the totem pole when it comes to issues being addressed and, and acknowledged. Well, then you're book also talks about the intersectionality of these four outcomes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that intersectionality and, and those outcomes in a little bit more detail? So sexism, intersectionality can be used uh, as a term, can be used to look at the intersection of, of many things. Um, it, it was first coined to look at uh, racism and the intersection of racism with other aspects, other biases. With sexism, you look at it, you start with sexism, and then you look at, well, what else might be intersecting with the sexism that could be leading to worse results, um, worse behaviors, worse, worse impact to these women? So sex, for example, sexism and racism. Women of color typically are receive worse uh, outputs from the sexism than, than white women. Um, ageism. Older women, and you can look at the other extreme, younger women, uh, you know, same thing. And An older woman uh, will, will be called out more so um, around issues, especially think about career or hiring. Uh, ableism, so women that are disabled are, one of, uh, are, are considered in one of the worst positions when it comes to sexism, when you combine the two and how they're treated and the the help that they receive and and 
the way they are controlled um, by men who take advantage of the fact they're disabled. Um, size, your class, um, and your sexuality, which we talked about. Those are all things that you, when you combine those with sexism, are going to, I call it double jeopardy. You're going to have double jeopardy and sometimes triple jeopardy, right? Sexism, racism, and ableism, or, you, or ageism. You know, you can combine all these and they add up to where the impact is going to be far more significant on a woman than, than if it's, you know, a standalone. Yeah. And, and I think there's a great example of that right now. Um, and that's, um, the issue with Brittany Griner, who's being unlawfully detained in Russia, who's a star of the WNBA. Not only is she a woman, she's black. She's also a lesbian. And, uh, there's, you know, for a while, uh, her wife was wanting to keep the situation very quiet. And there was, they were going through some back channels to try and get her out. And, and now it's all over the news and, and pressures being put on the Biden administration to get her out. But I think that's a great example. Um, a lot of people were saying if that was LeBron James or, you know, a, another male athlete, um, whether black or white, the situation would be very, very different. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. Absolutely true. I mean, there you've got a woman, um, woman of color, uh, woman uh, of color who's a lesbian. I mean, you've got all these things going on that uh, if it was, you know, if it was a male athlete, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be happening. Absolutely. Definitely not. Well, Lynn, at the end of anti-sexist, you say that women need to get angry about sexism. Why should they be angry? They should be angry because of what's happening to them. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know, when you look at the, when you look at all the four outcomes, so microaggression, har- discrimination, harassment, and violence. And when you look at all of the, the, then the six areas within each of those four, so that's 24 areas and there's more, that's not all, you know, it's not everything. I just picked the heavy hit, you know, the really heavy hitters. When you look at the multitude of ways that women experience sexism from the time they are very, 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 I mean, even before they're born, you know, you get pink to blue, you know, all of that going on. Um, when you look at that, you, you should be, you, you, I don't know how someone couldn't be angry. I don't know how there couldn't be rage. On the flip side, women are taught and trained from a very young age that stereotypically women don't get angry. They shouldn't get angry. It's inappropriate for women to be angry. So you certainly have that conflict going on of, you know, if I behave like I'm supposed to behave, I don't get angry because when I get angry, I get judged poorly uh, and I'm looked at poorly because I'm a woman getting angry. But on the flip side, if we don't get angry, anger is what what causes change. Anger is what drives change. Anger channeled appropriately will make things change for women. So women need to get angry. Men need to get angry. Men need to get angry about this and what's happening to to women. The unfortunate thing is, and, and some are, the unfortunate thing is, is stereotypically, you know, men in the patriarchy, you know, it's about power and control. You know, rape isn't about sex. Rape is about power and control. So all of these microaggression, discrimination, harassment, violence, it's all about power and control um, over women. But men and women need to be angry about this and channel their anger to drive, drive change. 
So then what are some of the actions people can take to stop sexism, be anti-sexist and create an anti-sexist action plan? Sure. One of the things I say is that to remember that sexist um, is not a four letter word. So it, it is certainly it's bad. It's awful. But if we if we treat it like something we can't and won't talk about, it's not going to change. So we have to own it. I mean, I tell people all the time I'm sexist and I give examples. It's because of how, you know, sometimes how I was brought up that I have certain expectations about women that that I shouldn't have the media. But fortunately for me, I'm at a point in time where I catch it when I think it and I don't allow it to come out of my mouth or influence my actions. So we need to talk about it and we need to be honest. The research shows actually um, a recent U.N. study shows that. The majority, nine out of 10 people are sexist with with deep types of sexual you know, biases, sexist biases, not just the, you know, the run of the mill ones. Uh, so my I would say everyone is sexist and we just need to own it. We need to step up and talk about it. I think that's, you know, it's like any 12 step program. You've got to own it and admit it before you can make change. I think once you're able to do that, you can reflect on your biases and where they come from. So that's a next step. Uh, after you admit it, think about, well, what biases do I have? Explore that. When do I, when, when am I thinking things about women that are sexist? Where did those come from? Uh, and then how can I make sure that I don't allow, because you can't, bottom line, you can't get rid of your biases. Research shows you can't get rid of it, but you can learn about it, you can acknowledge them, and you can manage them. And so that's what anti-sexist is all about, is helping you learn about them, acknowledge them, and manage them, because you can't get rid of them. So once you realize what kind of biases you have, like I talked about, you can hopefully stop it. When you think about it, you catch it, and then you can stop it uh, from coming out of your mouth or, or impacting your, your actions. I think another one is, I think key in all of this is, is talking to other people about it. And once you, once you become aware, once you realize where your biases are, where they're coming from, it's talking to others and holding others accountable. So if you're a man and your buddy's saying inappropriate things, you know, you don't have to get angry or, but you can simply say, what did you mean by that? And that often, when they say what they mean, that one, makes them pause and think. And then two, if when they respond, you can say, well, here's how I interpret that. You know, this is what, what it, what, how I took it. And it's, and it's inappropriate. Uh, speaking to your children, your sons, your daughters, uh, if, if you are experiencing any of these as a woman, you know, speak to other people um, about it, share it. Uh, so that hopefully, some, you you know, there's there's people on your side. You're not alone. I think that another reason I wrote the book is to show you're not, you know, you're not alone. Um, and then, you know, write down a couple of actions that you're going to take immediately in these areas. You know, is there something my, in regards to microaggressions you can do immediately? And those are what we do those every day. So you can immediately impact microaggressions. How about harassment? Do you know someone being harassed? Can you help out that way? Can you speak up about it? A discrimination, same thing. You know, are you seeing discrimination happen? Can you speak up about it? Do you uh, discriminate in in some way uh, yourself? And then violence is is so key in that it often takes a woman seven times before seven attempts before she actually leaves a man who's who's been abusive. Now. 
all violence is not domestic abuse, but that's important is, is how can you be there for someone and support someone uh, through those those types of things, have those discussions um, as well and and not let your voice be silent, silence, not let yourself be silenced, but but speak up. Um, and always keep an eye out. I mean, I see the biases now everywhere. I see the headlines in the news now everywhere, almost to the point where sometimes I'm like, oh, I just want to, I want to, I wish I could stop seeing it. <laughs> and a lot of people do. A lot of people go into denial and they ignore it's happening because you don't want to see it every day, but it's there. It's there in volumes. So start watching for it, what you're seeing, and then think about how you, how you can address it. How can you challenge sexism? How can you champion women's rights? And how can you help to create equality? And all of that then creates a safer and more equitable world for women and girls, which is what we want to do. Very well said, Lynn. And as the podcast comes to a close, are you optimistic that as a society we'll ever totally eradicate sexism? Yeah, I honestly feel no. <laughs> Been around for 3,000 years. Sounds like it's pretty ingrained. Yeah, I feel that there are there are always going to be people that are going to want to control and have power and you know and oppress those that they feel are less than and women are in a category where there are people who feel that they are are less than and should be kept in their place so i wish i could say yes it'll be fully eradicated someday i just i just don't see it well, thank you so much, Lynn, for writing such a great book. We'll make sure we put a link to it in the show notes. I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Yeah, they can reach me. My email is lschmidt912 at hotmail.com. But also I'm, also, I'm on various social media sites. So LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, there, there are lots of ways to reach me. Um, as well. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Lynn. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.